jasoncharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. Arts and culture. You are listening to Lost Angeles with Laura Craven on jasoncharles.net This is Laura Craven with Lost Angeles on jasoncharles.net podcast network. Today, I'm interviewing Nicole Thompson, a docent for the LA Conservancy, and we are sitting in the South Galleria of the Biltmore Hotel. The Biltmore is one of the preeminent luxury hotels in downtown Los Angeles, opened on October 2nd, 1923, after breaking ground in 1921. Hi, Nicole. Hello. Thank you for having me. If you could tell us a little bit about the original owner of the Biltmore, Nicole, and what went into its opening in 1923, that would be a great place to start. Of course. The Biltmore was an enterprise driven by a group of businessmen in downtown Los Angeles, uh, largely the who's who of businessmen in Los Angeles. Angelinos like Harry Chandler, Three Hellmans, IHMS and Marco Hellman, Arthur Lutz and E.P. Clark. They were just a few of the gentlemen who decided to bring their flair of modernization to Los Angeles and surpass the Alexandria's level of sumptuousness. The development became very public. In the fundraising, it was brought together through stocks and bonds. They raised about $10 million. That was the projected cost to build the first phase. The undertaking of it became a cause celebre of modern amenities in the city, and they utilized the technology available to them at the time, like radio and telephone and luxury that really hadn't been seen in Los Angeles. And when you're speaking about the unique luxury to the Biltmore, that was the wish of the main developer, John McEntee Bowman, and included having radio hookups in the rooms. John McEntee Bowman came to Los Angeles through a lot of arm twisting from the CIC, otherwise known as the Central Investment Corporation. They decided that having the best hotelier in the country, John McEntee Bowman, was going to be their cachet in bringing the best of travelers to the city. John McEntee Bowman did not want to come to Los Angeles. He did not feel that LA had enough draw for people with money to come and stay. So he needed guarantees that would bring people. One of them being uh, the most luxurious materials. Technology was more of what the CIC wanted to have. They were the ones that were implementing the need for radio, radio hookup, radio tower on the building, radio hookups in each of the rooms. Consoles were brought to a room on demand. The corporation gave John McDee Bowman a 25-year lease to come to the city, and he was the one who brought the architects with him. It and was those co- are Schultz and Weaver. Correct. It was a collaboration between the CIC and John McEntee Bowman. They finally had convinced him, and he said, okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to do the best. Mm-hmm. And these architects, they were known for buildings such as the Waldorf Astoria and 
the Sherry Netherland, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. In, so they were bringing that type of opulence very deliberately to Los Angeles. Yes, which. John McEntee Bowman had worked with Schultz and Weaver. They were a very, very new corporation at that time. They had established their company in 1921. They had had some spectacular pieces of architectural design in New York City as hotels, and they became known for their large-scale hotel construction. They brought the luxurious feel to Los Angeles on a East Coast level that the West Coast really hadn't been shown in L.A. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that's notable is I want to thank you for the tour that you gave us. That was so informative and really, really entertaining. Thank you. But I learned that the hotel was built in four phases and shockingly had 1,500 rooms initially and now we're down to 683. So that makes the footprint of each room has grown kind of exponentially. Do you have details about what the square footages were in the earliest days? No, I don't have access to the square footage, though I do have pictures of those original rooms and suites. Modern needs now require so much more space than they did at the time when we look at living spaces in New York City compared to what we have in Los Angeles and the needs. We have two different living space requirements and that sort of translated over to hotel space as well. Mm -hmm. The Biltmore, as it's gone towards the 21st century, realized that yes, bigger rooms were a need, but also having office space was a need as well. And uh, combining rooms into bigger spaces, modernizing the spaces, and creating more business income, more revenue for the companies that have owned the Biltmore was a need. And that is how and why the rooms became less and less and bigger and bigger. So currently, are there floors dedicated to commercial office space yes. in the building? And I noticed that on the ground level, it's retail. I noticed a barber shop and there's a restaurant yes. down there and it must be just the greatest thing to have your business on the the street level of the Biltmore Hotel. Yes, that is originally how those art structures were developed would be on the ground floor would have retail space. The core of the business building would be the middle section and the reflection of that is very apparent in the construction and style of Beaux-Arts building, which the Biltmore is. The ground floor retail has uh, been revitalized here at the Biltmore in the last few years. The barbershop is, I think, two years old now, and we have had restaurants for several years. Smeraldi's has been there for a while, and we just lost Sai Sai mm -hmm. in the corner where the coffee shop used to be, and the tea place, the boba place, and the nail shop, and the jewelry store, in effect, have mm -hmm. been there for quite some time, and I believe there's a dentist as well. So very typical for ground floor retail space in a Beaux-Arts building, right. so it's continuing in its tradition. I am considering changing dentists, so I can come here to have... <laughs> to have my dental appointments. Um, and since you mentioned Smeraldi's, we'll, we'll segue into the interior design of the building, which is absolutely magnificent and very varied. So we'll speak about Giovanni Smeraldi, which they've lovingly named a 
restaurant in the Biltmore after, and he had a great reputation for doing work not only in the White House, but the Vatican as well, and lovingly made each of the grand ballrooms in this building slightly unique and different in theme. So if you could speak to what those rooms are named and what their theme might be, that would be great. The names that we have now for the ballrooms is not the original names that we had for them. Some of them, I know the former names of them. And Giovanni had a hand in uh, probably half of them. Definitely the Crystal Ballroom was his glorious output and the most stunning room and the room I say for last because I try to have a build-up of what everybody is seeing and I like to have that as the end which does not always work when it's not available <laughs> or like today where I, I am trying very hard to make sure everybody gets to enjoy it before they have to leave. So Smeraldi did the Crystal Ballroom, he did the Galleria Real, and he did the South Galleria that we are in right now. And the South Galleria is one of my favorite spaces because it has a color scheme that we haven't seen when we go through the rest of the hotel. It has golds and umber and these warm colors where the other spaces are more pastel and a little more delicate. This has delicacy to it, but it's very reflective of the Pompeian themes that this whole space kind of invokes, whereas the other rooms are, are less Pompeian, more continental. Right. I and have to say, yeah, it is just absolutely beautiful, and all the detail and the touches are great. And I, I should interject here that because we are in the South Gallery, which is a public space, that is why there is some background noise of travelers and revelers as they pass through. Yes. <laughs> yes. But the spaces that Giovanni did all have a delicate sense to them, very airy, very romantic and very fanciful. The spaces that Anthony Heinsbergen did, the other counterpart that we know who helped decorate, his spaces are very masculine and very cozy and cave-like and protective. So we have the airy open spaces that Giovanni did and then we have the, the very masculine earthy spaces that Anthony did. Mm -hmm. And I like that juxtaposition of style. And then when we look at the pieces that Anthony Heinsbergen did for the renovation of the Gold Room in the 30s, the early 30s, when Baron Long took over from John McEntee Bowman, and redid a lot of the rooms, and we see what Anthony had done in the new era and the new style of what the 30s were giving us as decoration. So it's neat to see the evolution of style here at the Biltmore because it's not just one style and it's not just one person doing the styling as well. Right, yeah, it's the variety of it which makes it so special. And I should say since we're moving through the 30s and with the new owner Baron Long who had casinos in Tijuana and also other hotel yes. projects like throughout the country, Florida, Georgia. This was during the time of prohibition. So yes. it's true that the Biltmore was a speakeasy in, in a sense. They were able to provide liquor kind of surreptitiously to their clientele. My understanding is it wasn't very 
hidden, but it wasn't very blatant as well. The flow of alcohol was definitely something that was available here at the Biltmore Hotel. And there are spaces, there's stories for sure, but there are spaces that are still preserved up in the presidential suite that reflect the hidden spaces for the alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of stories about hiding alcohol or signaling that the police are going to come and raid. I think Baron Long and his connections with people from all over the place and through his various ventures, the track, the the resort in uh, Tijuana, the Agua Caliente, or his gambling ship off the coast, or his country club in Vernon, his other ventures, of adventures in the rest of the world in Los Angeles. He knew people and he knew how to protect himself and he also knew how to throw a party mm. and have people be comfortable. And I think that was Baron Lawn's success, was that he knew how to entertain and make people feel comfortable. Yeah. Wow, it's, it's stories like that that come out full of celebrity and opulence that just, it makes me want to be able to, to go back just for a short time to that, to that period and see what life was really like. Um, but since we're moving through the rooms, I wanted to talk a little bit about the music room, which was John F. Kennedy's war room during the 1960 Democratic National Convention. And LBJ also had his war room here in the Biltmore. So as you spoke about in the tour, the press were all in their own space. In, Correct. Was that in the gold room? The press were in the Crystal Ballroom. Oh, the Crystal Ballroom. Because so it was the largest room. There must and have been a lot of running back and forth between oh, yes. these two. Yes. And then we have the music room being the location of JFK. And LBJ had the dining room, which I lovingly call the hunt room because it has all of the elements of the hunt in there. And my light bulb today of it being very Texan and very appropriate for him to be in that room. Well, yes, as you were talking about the hunt and the harvest that are painted all along the frescoes in that dining room that were LBJs, they, they really are so lovingly painted and there's so much attention to detail. I, I just loved how you have a laser pointer and you pointed out each type of animal and what kind of weapon was used to bring them to their end so that they could be a meal. It's very evocative of the time and where these people were coming from, the, the East Coast, and those the ideas of class and those ideas of money and those ideas of entertaining. We forget that that was part of almost the expectation. Every room has a different feel. You see themes, you see themes of shapes, you see themes of colors, you see themes of design that you've seen in another room, but the mashing together or all of a sudden a new theme is brought forward, but it's still trailing the other themes from the other rooms or the other themes of design, uh, the motifs I've mentioned. Uh, you see how they tried very hard to intertwine them and continue a storyline, and that's not always the case. Yeah. They don't take those um, ideas of detail into thoughts. Right. It's true, and it is such a blend. The Italian Renaissance is represented, and that everywhere mythology mm-hmm. is represented. We're seeing gods and goddesses. 
either painted or in sculpture. And as you pointed out too, there are angels everywhere and that's supposed to be representational of Los Angeles. I'm Correct. Yes, the city of angels. Right. Or Biltmore Angel. She's everywhere. And uh, as I like to tease, she, she's not going very far because she doesn't have any legs. She, <laughs> the wings are nice. <laughs> the wings are nice, but who knows if they're clipped or not. But, yeah, she doesn't have any legs, so she's not going terribly far. Right. Um, you know, we have talked about how this was a place for celebrity. But at the same time, it was the birthplace of the Academy Awards. Not to say that the first one was done here. I think there were eight Academy Awards at the Biltmore. But that the idea for them was developed here. If you could talk a little bit about how Louis B. Mayer was an important part of that decision. The story is pretty amusing. Uh, Louis B. Mayer had a history of not wanting to give his actors a lot of support. He would support them in paying them to do a good job, but patting them on the head or giving them accolades beyond that was not something that he was known to do, and he was a taskmaster at times. And when he got wind of the continual complaints of we need to have more renown from you, we need to have more recognition from you, from our from our father, you, Louis B. Mayer, he finally consented that perhaps a merit system of some sort, an award, would satisfy that. And he could not have to pay them more, but basically give them a pat on the head in a, in a royal, spectacular mm-hmm. way that would satisfy this want of these, these actors, these artistes. And uh, so a group of uh, motion picture makers got together with this luncheon and the idea to satisfy these actors needs to be recognized was developed and and the academy awards as an award was in the crystal ballroom at this luncheon and uh, there's the classic story of Cedric Gibbons not having much to do but listen and he was fond of drawing anyhow. He was a set He was designer. a set designer, very well known set designer. The the sumptuous sets of MGM are usually attributed to him and his crew. He would sketch a lot during these luncheons and meetings and sketched out the figure, the form that would become the Oscar. And supposedly he did it on a linen napkin here. He always had a pen, but he rarely had something to draw on. So he would use whatever was handy. And that particular day, it was a linen napkin. And that is the form that became the statue. Correct. That's a great story. I wanted to talk a little bit about the historic importance of the Biltmore in that the second floor was given over to servicemen during World War II while they were shipping out. That was a very patriotic contribution to the war for such a an opulent, luxurious hotel. I really think that FDR telling the world that we were going to be supportive of our troops, telling the United States citizens that we have to be supportive of our troops. If we're going to be in this war, we're going to do what we can to, to make it a successful mm-hmm. and required that every corporation do their best to support the war effort and I think that that was the draw to make the Biltmore because it had the space because Mm -hmm. it was close to the port that was sending out folks to the Pacific Theater that they would 
be the location to support them by giving them bunks, giving them cots to sleep in and, and feed them and, and entertain them. We had a USO functions here. We had a lot of support for the troops happening here through fundraising, through entertainment. Another of the great legacies of this incredible building. I quickly wanted to touch on your experience as a docent here. How long have you been working with the LA Conservancy? I've been a docent volunteer for about 20 years with the Conservancy and I myself, I can't quite nail down when I started doing the Biltmore in particular as a tour but I started probably about 15, 13 years ago giving the tour of the Biltmore, and it was intimidating at first. We had 50 pages to memorize and uh, know, and we're encouraged to bring it to the public through our own eyes, through our own experiences, and it's interesting that every docent brings that, and it's neat to go on another docent's tour at the same place that you do, because they each bring, like I said, their own flair, their own experience. Well, I'm grateful for your expertise and your experience because it made it just a great time. And everybody that was on the tour with me, I know, really enjoyed themselves. So I wanted to say if you're able to go on the LA Conservancy tour of the Biltmore, it's a great experience. There's a lot more to learn than we could even cover in this episode of the podcast. You can go to laconservancy.org and find out the time and location of the walking tour. It's every Sunday at 2 p.m. And if you want more information about the Biltmore, it's located at 506 South Grand Avenue. You could go to millenniumhotels.com for their website and to get more information on that. And I wanted to thank you, Nicole, so much for taking the time to talk to us today. And I'd like to say a special thanks to Barry and Chase from 567podcast.com. They're incredible sound engineers, and I really appreciate their help on every episode. For jasoncharles.net Podcast Network, this is Laura Craven with Los Angeles. You've been listening to Lost Angeles with Laura Craven on jasoncharles.net. jasoncharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.